With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! <laughs> my sister and my daughter! Rosebud. What's in the box? Hello, and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Forrest Wickman, Slate's culture editor, and today we are spoiling Black Klansmen, uh, the latest joint, I guess we should call it, from Spike Lee, um, based on the memoir of Ron Stallworth about his experience going undercover as a black man in the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Joining me to spoil Black Klansmen are Aisha Harris... Hey, Aisha. (laughs) Hello. So I can no longer introduce you as a Slate staff writer because you are now. You have left us for the Grey Lady and you are now. At the New York Times, yes. Um, But you are still as loyal as ever to the spoiler special. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) That's what really matters. We're happy to have you back. Um, Also joining me uh, from the Bay Area is Ingu Kang, a Slate staff writer. Hey, Ingu. Hey. Um, all right, so let's dive in. I have not talked to either of you at length about this movie, even though I have talked to either of you, both of you about other things, and so I've been dying to talk about it. Uh, let's start um, with what Dana usually calls a thumbnail reaction from each of you. I guess say both what your relationship is to Spike Lee's movies, which is maybe a big question, um, but, you know, are you a fan? Uh, and then what you thought of this movie and how it fits in with those. So, Aisha, why don't you go first? I have a, I wouldn't say it's a complicated relationship, but I, I do, you know, I'm not even going to say that. I am a Spike Lee fan, with caveats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and His it, movies are wildly uneven. I think even the biggest of fans yes. of his, of which I would count myself one, would admit that his movies are wildly uneven. Right. So I don't think it's like at all radical for me to say that I think that that's actually probably a lot of his fans, if not most of his fans, are sort of... It it, it really depends on which movie we're talking yeah. about, if we're going to really like ride for him or not. Right. And, it, you know, I think that in the last decade or so, he's been very hit or miss the only thing i can mm-hmm. think of that i would call like a true masterpiece that he's done or even just like an excellent piece of film like as of from beginning to end unqualified is when the levees broke yeah and that movie came out i want to say in 2006 yeah i would say like right almost exactly a decade ago yeah like right maybe, yeah. right after the hurricane katrina which is that is what the movie is about it's a do- like long documentary and um it i think that that is a brilliant piece of of work his his films recently not so much uh <laughs> the, the sweet blood of jesus i think we oh, saw it together God. and that is like the one Spike Lee movie that i cannot i really defend i can't defend that by any means i oof i actually think i watched that like i watched a screener of it if i remember correctly and i i wanted to turn it off i really found red hook summer to be very very trying 
of my patience. <laughs> it tried my <laughs> patience very much. And old boy was unnecessary. I was one of the rare people who was pretty much, I actually appreciated Chirac. Yeah. I, I think I think maybe Richard Brody of The New Yorker also Best movie it. of the year, I believe he called yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I did not go that far, but I did think I was excited by, it, it felt like he was excited again to yeah. be making films in the movie, even though it was wildly all over the place, like a lot of his films are, and, and I had a lot of huge problems with it. I was excited by how just interesting the sort of failure of it was. Yeah. So, but if, if I were going to put Black Klansman you know, between those two movies, I would say it's much better than Chirac. It's not on the level of when Levy's broke, but like when Levy's broke is like, it's really hard to get that close, no matter what filmmaker you are, I think. So I really enjoy Black Klansman. And uh, we have some, I had some issues with it that I'm sure we'll get into. But overall, I thought it was really great. And I'm very excited to see him like back on top. Yeah. How about how about you, Ingo? Um, I have to say, I don't think that I know his, sorry, (laughs) I don't, I wouldn't consider myself someone who is super well-versed in his filmography. I would say that the most recent movie of his that I saw was Chirac, which, I mean, a mess, but an interesting mess, um, just like we talked about. And I would say that as far as a thumbs up, thumbs down goes, Black Klansman, Again, really interesting. And yet, I really don't know if I would recommend this movie to anyone. <laughs> so, the, so the one thing that I, you did tell me, Ingo, as sort of a preview of your review, is you said you thought this was a great movie that you could not recommend to anyone. Which I th- think, I gather that like you just found it much more disturbing and in that sense difficult to watch than I did though of course there are definitely sequences that like any right thinking human would find extremely disturbing as soon as the movie was over I texted a couple of my friends and said hereditary was an easier watch than black Klansmen. um yeah I it felt to me like spending two hours like in 4chan or like the Donald subreddit. I knew what it was going for, but it was spending, it was forcing us to spend so much time with these white supremacists. And I think sometimes the shock that he was going for, uh, I definitely felt it. And then sometimes I was just like, why am I here? Like listening to these like reenactments of racism when I already know this is bad. But you've got to hear both sides. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Ingo. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think I found it more entertaining than you did. I mean, there's that, like, Marx quote that history repeats itself versus tragedy and then is farce. And this feels like a farce about the Klan that takes place between the tragedies of, like, you know, countless lynchings, especially after Birth of a Nation, which it kind of, which it it talks about explicitly, and um, you know the events of Charlottesville last year, and in between you get this kind of like black exploitation flick, where some horrible things happen and there's horrible behavior in it, but like the good guys win for now, uh, and I found that very satisfying even as there are some extremely disturbing sequences which we will get to but uh we should really dive into the plot uh so 
Although before we even get to the plot, we have to talk about the opening sequence of this movie, which has nothing to do with the plot and everything to do with like the history of the United States. So the first shot of this movie uh, is the like famous dolly out shot from Gone with the Wind, where the camera like pans over all these wo- wounded soldiers and then slowly dollies out and out and out so, until you see first like you know, thousands of wounded soldiers and then the Confederate flag. Right. Um, Which I I was, when I saw that shot, I was remembering, Aisha, that that is what we chose as like the (laughs) art for your piece about Gone with the Wind because it's just the best single image that embodies the like lost cause mythology of that movie. Um, So there's that shot. And then uh, the first character in the movie is uh, who, Aisha? (laughs) None other than Alec Baldwin playing. I don't think he has I have, a name. I have the name. Oh, he does. Because I think it's significant. The name is Dr. Kennebrew Beauregard, which is both just like kind of funny as like a generic Southern white guy name. Um, and I say this as somebody who is named Forrest, which I will <laughs> loudly declare has nothing to do with Nathan Bedford Forrest. I was not named after any famous racists. Um, but like <laughs> Bo- Beauregard, you know, is the middle name of uh, our current attorney general, Jeff Sessions, who is named after like, so PGT Beauregard was a famous Confederate general uh, and Jeff Sessions is named after Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, hmm. and uh, PGT Beauregard. I mean, we should, t- I guess, technically, his grandfather was named after both of those guys, and he was named after his father, who was named after his grandfather. It doesn't matter. It's all connected. But, right. I mean, it's just like that name contains yeah. a lot of like signals right away, both the depth of history of, in this country and like how it keeps being passed down right and so this character Beauregard played by Alec Baldwin is planted directly in front of this uh he's in a dark room and it's like an old school slide slide or like projector screen on the back of like so it's against his face and against the wall I don't recall exactly what was being shown behind him but he's basically giving this lecture about you know America being under attack and he's obviously supposed to be Trump but right. but yeah. in like the 1950s right, right like it's in like 1950s when America style. was quote unquote great right so Trump or he's uh, railing against integration essentially he was every racist governor lawmaker whatever that existed in the 1950s he's spewing a lot of the same hatred against in- integration and of course, that translates, and this is what we see throughout the rest of the film: is these parallels between the 1950s, 60s, 70s racism and the racism we have currently with our president and our administration. Right. Don't later forget we, YouTube. Right, and YouTube, and then and you know later we get Klan members saying things like "Make America Great Again" and "America First, uh, which was a common slogan of the Klan, even though that's not necessarily its its origin. Um, so that does make some sense but it is uh not subtle um yeah i think the uh anachronisms of this movie is one of the things that really give it its power there's a point at which alec baldwin uh refers to super predators in that uh 1950s video and that's another example of how spike lee is really playing around with time to show you how we're sort of like back in these in the period of like the 70s which is actually like back to being like in the 30s or the 40s 
You're right. I mean, I, I guess the super predators thing is an anachronism, but like most of the things are like the, some of them might be a little forced, but there are totally things that like actual clan members did say. Um, and so I feel I feel like the overall point is just like how little things change, which is a recurring theme of of his movies. Uh, and I guess we should also say this is just like a really weird sequence where it changes constantly between it starts as black and white and then it's like then it's red, white and blue. Like these different tints come over. I found it to be like a mostly successful experiment, mostly just because it's kind of funny. Like he keeps <laughs> messing up it. Like you mentioned, you know, various racists from the 50s, but also just reminded me of like Bill O'Reilly and we're doing it live. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. also very reminiscent of like Alec Baldwin's character on 30 Rock, who has a whole episode about how he can't actually like perform this like straight video. And so there, uh, basically, he ends up doing something like 900 takes for a five minute video. Um, I, I don't know. It was like a really weird, maybe accidental callback. I also didn't really buy Alec Baldwin as a Southerner. He's like <laughs> so obviously a New Yorker, but, but I didn't. I, I don't. I didn't think we were supposed to, though. I think it was supposed to be very hammy and over the top, and like you know, it's Alec Baldwin. Like, there's a reason he yeah. cast yeah. Alec Baldwin, and it wasn't for like any sort of realism in that way it was because you see Alec Baldwin and then you think of Trump and then you also think of, like oh yeah I didn't even think about that mm. Baldwin as famous Trump impersonator yeah I mean I think he was totally playing into that so. yeah that's a that's a great point hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels so whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price Priceline yeah um okay we should jump into the actual events of this movie um Ingo why don't you uh take us into Colorado Springs in the 1970s and our our uh protagonist so our protagonist is named Ron Stallworth um he Ron Stallworth is a real person. He wrote a memoir, basically, of all of the things that happened in the movie. And he is played by John David Washington, who is Denzel Washington's son. So you can imagine sort of like this like pretty solid guy. Right. I guess I, I wasn't super familiar with uh, John David Washington previously, previously because he hasn't done a lot of acting work. But I guess he was primarily a football player before. And like he looks at it like it. He's like pretty jacked. Yeah. Now he's on HBO's Ballers, which somehow is on like its fourth or fifth season, I think. <laughs> like, it's because uh, <laughs> Elizabeth Warren watches it every every week. They can't cancel it. Clearly. That is a true fact. Um, anyway, sorry, I interrupted Ingo. So he goes into the Colorado Springs Police Department and basically says, I want to be a cop. And there's a white interviewer and a black interviewer. And the black interviewer doesn't actually work for the police department. And we find this out very quickly because there has never been a black police officer in the Colorado Springs Police Department. And so he his job is sort of to be the Jackie Robinson of this police department and they ask him a bunch of really racialized questions like if he's a womanizer or if he does drugs or if he likes to go to nightclubs 
Um, and then basically he's asked if uh, a fellow cop called him the N-word, would he be able to sort of hold it in? And uh, Ron has to think about this for a while and basically says, sure, I guess like if I had to. And so he ends up very quickly in the basement, I guess, of the police department where all the records are kept. And he's just sort of in this secretarial position where the other cops ask him for files and he takes it to them. And he realizes pretty quickly, I can do a lot more than this. Um, and so he goes into his boss's office and says, I want to be undercover. And the boss basically laughs him out of the room. Yeah, I mean, we should also say he he very quickly, like the, his answer to that one very tough question becomes relevant because he's very quickly faced with um, racism in the police department. I believe it's this guy named um, Officer Landers, I believe is his name in the sequence, who comes and calls him Officer Toad. But he, again, you know, has to sort of balance upholding his own dignity with um, you know, not getting kicked out of his job. Um, and then he eventually gets his first break, which is uh, what, Aisha? So his first break is um, uh, Stokely Carmichael is coming to town to give a speech for the Black Student Alliance at whatever the school is there i don't i don't know which university i don't know is. if they ever s- specify what the university is it's, but it, you yeah, know but it's, it's definitely college. the black student union has has brought him and yeah at this point he's known as Kwame Touré yes and so um he is played by uh, Corey Hawkins Corey from Hawkins. S- Dr. Dre from Straight Outta Compton yes and, and they, also like the new Jack Bauer Right? Yes, on the 24 reboot yeah. or whatever. And also like an accomplished Broadway actor. Like, yes, he's, he's great. He's great. And so he he's sent to go undercover and like find out if Kwame Ture, a.k.a. Stokely Carmichael, is going to be like inciting any riots or like it's it's basically what the FBI was doing at the time, yeah. which was infiltrating uh, anything closely related, related to the Black Power movement, the Black Panther movement. And while he's waiting in line to do that, um, he meets Laura Harrier's character. Um, Patrice? Patrice. Patrice Dumas. And she's the sort of, uh, I think, if not the head, she's like one of the organizers of she's the... She's the president of the union. Right. So she's the president of the union. And so his character is very much John David Washington's character, Ron Stallworth. He... And this is something I think we can probably get into maybe now or later. But so the whole the whole a big conceit of this movie, jumping ahead a little bit, is and it's in the trailer. Well, and this is obviously a spoiler special, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but so he he um he convinces the KKK later on uh, that he is a white man and the KKK believes that he is. Um and so when he goes to talk to the the woman uh, Patrice in the line before he goes in to try and like get ahead of the line and not go, have to wait in line, she like something about him automatically seems off it's it's, he's just like he clearly is not with anyone he's by himself he's kind of you know he's not this is his first time going undercover so he's like never done this before and he also like doesn't know the lingo that you know the 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 typical lingo of that time um and at at one point even before this scene happens his uh his bosses ask him like can you speak jive and he's like yeah i can speak jive and i can speak you know proper english like i'm bilingual in that way code switching whatever 
Um, but what's interesting about John David Washington's choice, I'm just going to get into this, is that honestly, I was wa- I was listening very closely throughout this entire movie, and I could not tell the difference between his jive and his not jive voice. Right. I and I don't know if that was a deliberate choice or what, because I like one could argue. So when he's talking to. Patrice's character in the line, like she's obviously wary of him and is like, You are you I don't even I don't know if she asked him if he's a cop, but like she seems not then. Okay, not then. She does later, or someone does yeah, later. Yeah. Um and you know, he he his his the timbre of his voice <laughs> is not it, it, he speaks like I mean, the simplest, the like most sensitive way to say this is just that when he is later deliberately impersonating a white, impersonating a white person, his voice sounds basically exactly the same. Right, and he so even, it's totally different from like in um, "Sorry to Bother You," you when right. you have Lakeith Stanfield on one hand, on the one hand, and like David Cross's voice exactly. on the other hand. This is something you wrote about for the Times, right? Aisha. There's there's also just this like sense of he he pronounces white as white, yeah. Which <laughs> it's like I think it's a joke. I, I think it's a joke, but then it's like I the it's weird. Anyway, <laughs> there's this one line where he's like, "With the right white man, we can do anything," right. which is a very funny line about white privilege or whatever. But it's but especially he, funny when he plays up the white. Yeah, but then he also says it in times when I can't tell if he's supposed yeah. to be like if he's being sarcastic or not. So. <laughs> So anyway, and we don't know much about his background except for that. Like, I think we learned that his parents were in the military or something. So, yeah. So it seems like he's maybe had a very sort of strict upbringing, uh, which may partially explain the way he speaks. But at the same time, like he has this big afro, so he doesn't seem like somebody who's like trying to you know pass or anything, right? Normally, but then he also like clearly doesn't seem like he's down with the black power right. movement. <laughs> Yeah, he seems like an in-between person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so anyway, he's able to get into this. this Sorry, speech. we should note, actually, one of the reasons why he's not really with the Black Power movement, um, or at least a version of it that Stokely Carmichael is uh, pontificating about uh, from the lectern, is that he is basically saying, Stokely Carmichael is basically saying, we need to go out and go kill white cops because a kind of race war in the future might be inevitable. And so he's saying, go arm yourselves, go buy a gun. And obviously, as a black cop, he's not really comfortable with that type of rhetoric, especially because he knows that there's a wire on him. So all of his white colleagues are listening to every single word. Right. I'm. I to be clear, I'm not sure that those are his exact words that they should go out and kill white cops. But they are saying go out and arm yourself and like if you have to, like protect yourself. Right. I think there's two lines that Kwame Ture says we are being shot down by racist by white racist cops during the speech, which is one of those moments where it's like, oh, it sounds like he could be talking about the present, but also it's totally something he probably did say then. And then at the end, he kind of whispers. I, I believe I can't remember if it's him or Patrice, Ron Stallworth or Patrice, who asks um, Kwame Ture how to like prepare for the revolution, essentially. Like, is it really coming? And then he does say, like, 
yeah, you better stock up on arms or something. Yeah, yeah. And so, but we should, I getting into that whole, that scene, it's a very long scene. It goes on for quite a while and is pretty much uninterrupted. Like Kwame Torrey is talking the whole time. We Obviously, there's like call and response. The audience is engaging, but like it's mostly him talking for, I don't know how long, like probably five to eight minutes-ish. And during that scene, Spike will occasionally um, cut to these close-ups of black faces, like uh, ostensibly people in the audience. Um, and sometimes you'll see one or two or three, and they're kind of... Um, they kind of look cl- like the Bohemian Rhapsody. This is yeah, a really yeah. irrelevant, <laughs> uh, irreverent way yeah. to say it, because like I actually, I think this is a, a pretty amazing sequence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the way that they're sort of presented, they're like pr- presented just against a black... Uh, backdrop kind of floating in space like beautifully lit I mean yeah. it's when Kwame Ture is talking about like black is beautiful I yes. think is what he's saying yeah and the, their afros are like impeccably just yeah. round and they even blend into the black background uh, so it's like a very conscious choice that Spike is is making there um, some would say on the nose but it's Spike and that's what he does um, and I thought I thought it was really pro- powerful I thought that whole scene was really p- really played out well and I thought that Corey Hawkins was really good in that so I mean after that scene he like he asks Patrice out and she says sure like I have to like finish up here but I'll meet you at a bar nearby later and so I don't know Forrest you want to take it up from there sure yeah I mean okay so we get two scenes in very stark contrast to each other the the first I believe is that um, we see Patrice who is trying to you know, just drive Kwame Ture home. They get pulled over. I don't know if like we're given a reason why they get pulled over. I think we're just to assume it's basically for driving while black and or well, they, that they're targeted because I'm they sure they were following Stokely. them from the right because it well they tell him to like get out of town before sunrise or something. Yeah, and it's as you might expect, a very tense and disturbing scene, um, including a part where this cop starts to grope Patrice, I guess. And one of her, one of the other women. Right. There's two women. At least I remember seeing two women and he begins to grope both of them. And that part's told in flashback. What happens is that we see her get picked up. We see them get picked up in the cop car. And then there might be something else in between. But then she meets him and uh, meets uh, Ron Ron at the bar and is like, I'm really sorry I'm late. Uh, but this is what happened. Right, and she right, right. explains via flashback, like, what happens and how he groped her. And then, weirdly, we, like, she's just told this story. And then it, like, just very awkwardly cuts to this musical dance number, which yeah. is really, really fun and great. And, like, the song is excellent. But we never, she never really processes what happens to her. He's just, like, she, she says, I was groped. And then he's, like... Let's go dance. And then they go dance. And yeah. I was like, what? Like that that really stood out to me. Like I remember that because I was just like, this is a really jarring, you know. It also really to stood out to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was it was a weird cut. Like it felt unfinished. Right. That may be a case where Spike Lee uh does not like when it comes to gender stuff he often steps in it more than with some other things yeah so that that this could be a a case of that and i think that that did not jump out to as much to me as a man and so maybe it also did not jump out as much to spike lee um but yeah yeah it's like a it's a really fun 
dance sequence. And it does, I mean, I guess it, it's probably a case of we're working on a sort of um, what's fact and what's fiction in this movie uh, post right now. And I, I don't have it in hand yet. But I know that um, he really was asked, at least according to his memoir, Ron Stolworth really was asked to go to like a Stokely Carmichael speech. And that was, I believe, his first undercover assignment. But I would not be surprised if some of the other events are condensed and if like... He, you know, his love interest wasn't pulled over. His his uh, you know future girlfriend wasn't pulled over on the same night and such. Um, okay, and now we have to get into the actual Black Klansman ing. So Ingu, how? Uh, uh, why don't you talk about how uh, he first goes undercover as a Klansman? So now that Colorado Springs is has gotten rid of all of the Black Power elements. Um, now they're going to go tackle the white power elements. Um, basically, Ron is at his desk. He's not given really anything or much to do. Um, essentially, he says he wants to be transferred over to intelligence, away from records. And so he's just sort of sitting at his desk, um, twiddling his thumbs, uh, goes through the newspaper, sees a classified ad, and it's <laughs> and it's for the KKK, and he decides, you know what? Why not just like give them a call? So he calls them up, you know, like you do, and basically says, "Hi, I would like some reading materials." Leaves a message, and basically they get back to him right away, <laughs> and. Uh, Essentially, they want they sort of like ask him a few questions about why he's interested in the clan. He makes up a story about how his sister was sexually assaulted, I believe, um, by a black man, among other things. And so he says, um, basically, I hate black people, so I'm really interested in joining the KKK leaves his real name, which he does not realize until after he gets off the phone. We should say that all the other officers are listening in and like, what is he talking about? Because they're just <laughs> hearing him say like, I hate, you know, this ethnic group. I hate that ethnic group using all of the worst slurs. Uh, and then they hear him use his real name and they're, you know, they make fun of him. Yes. And... Basically, they're like, oh, you're a rookie. You have absolutely no idea what you're doing. But now we're going to go along with this, like, crazy case that you opened up on a whim. So <laughs> they're sort of kind of stuck doing that. The problem, as you might have figured out at, by this point, is that Ron is black. And so how are they going to go undercover? So they decide that Adam Driver, who plays one of the white cops, should go undercover. Um, Adam Driver's character... Flip Flip Zimmerman. Flip Zimmerman is Jewish. but and, he, he's, and he's like passing right now. Yes, he's passing and also the KKK seems to hate Jews as much as they hate black people. Uh, but in a way that like Ron is clearly sort of bothered by all of this uh, very like outright hate... Uh, Flip does not seem to be. And so Flip will just sort of go do whatever he's told to do. Yeah, Flip is like better than all of the other white cops, but still like 
refuses to give up his like privilege of being able to pass in order to really fully join this cause. We should just briefly also mention, we started talking about this briefly off mic, but that the other cop who, I think he's Adam Driver's uh, partner at first. Yeah, something uh, along those lines. Yeah, you might, if you've seen this film, you might be like, wait, was that Steve Buscemi? No, it's not Steve Buscemi. Is it Steve Buscemi? And it turns out it is his brother, Michael Buscemi. I never had any doubt that he was Steve Buscemi because who looks like Steve Buscemi? <laughs> I was and just then, confused then, the whole movie. And then I was like, this is an interesting, like, I haven't seen this advertised. This is an interesting <laughs> twist. But then a small role for Steve Buscemi. Well, but I also, like, didn't know anything about, you know, Alec Baldwin being in the beginning right. either. So I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. This is great casting. And then I just now I Googled and it's like, oh, wait, he has a brother named Michael who looks just like him yeah. <laughs> and sounds like him too. And has not been in very many movies at all which made me feel somewhat better about not understanding like not recognizing him or knowing what was going on yeah so the three of them are sort of tag teaming like working together throughout the movie um mostly ron and flip they are playing ron star ron star so should we talk about the elocution lesson yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of it. <laughs> well, I guess we started to talk about it a little before in terms of the code switching and talking jive versus... Right, as, so, as yeah, so essentially Ron gives... He, he tries to give Flip lessons in how to speak the way that he was speaking on the phone because he's like, look, if they meet me and I don't sound like you on the phone, they, our cover is going to be blown. Yet at the same time, Flip the whole time is very resistant. And going a little bit back to what you were saying, Ingu, earlier about his being able to pass, like they do at some point, I don't remember if it's earlier or later, but they do at some point have a, a conversation between the two of them where Ron is like, why aren't you angrier about this? Or like, why don't you care more about this? And and Flip's like, I don't know. I never really thought about it. Like, I, right. you know, I... We should also say, I guess, like in his defense that he at least claims that like uh, he was not he's not very religious and was never very religious. Right. And he's like aware. There's a reference to him maybe wearing a Star of David necklace at some point, which yeah. su- su- suggests um, some uh, significance that he gives to his own Jewishness. But otherwise, it seems like it's not really a strong part of his identity that yeah. he's not actively hiding it right so much like he talked about i think at one point growing up and being the only jewish kid but like he never felt like he was the only jewish kid which is is like an obviously very interesting point to make in a movie about like who gets to be white and who gets to like assimilate and all that kind of thing who gets to pass and who gets to pass and later on it comes up that like (laughs) his being jewish or the possibility that he's jewish is a huge deal to one of the people he's trying to um deceive one of the white supremacies trying to deceive and then later he says like uh i kind of get it now like i i'm angry now but anyway that's jumping ahead but uh, so essentially when we're not he, jumping ahead that much, right? True, not, not that much. And it's all kind of a through line anyway. Yeah, I mean, essentially the next hour of the movie is a series of, of clan meetings with, um, you know, Ron Stallworth on the phone and mostly Adam Driver, who is, I think, very good in this movie, as he basically always is, um, going undercover in person and them sort of interrogating um, him and and question, questioning whether he's legit and him proving it in various ways. I, I, we should also talk about the the dynamics um, among the clan, which are um, interesting and become significant. Uh, as we had mentioned earlier, when 
Ron calls the KKK and leaves that message about wanting reading materials. He gets a call back right away. And so there's a guy named Walter who is very eager to meet him. He wants to be the recruiter. He really wants to make it as easy as possible for Ron to join because he knows that he needs to be out there smiling, making everyone feel comfortable, basically sort of treating it like a college club. And then there's this like very itchy sort of seeming guy named Felix. You know he's bad because all of his facial features are very pointy. <laughs> and his- He's also like sweaty in the way that like s- southern racists, I guess he's <laughs> you know, he's from Colorado in this movie. But in the way that like southern racists always are in movies, you can always tell a southern racist by their sweatiness. He's played by I didn't know this until after this guy named um I guess it's probably pronounced Jasper uh, Pakonin who is Finnish. And I have to say it was very convincing to the extent that I did not, despite the fact that he's Finnish, realize that he was like anything other than a white Southerner. And then there's sort of this like very fat guy who seems to know like five words. He's like evil Holdor. He is the dum-dum. Yes, he is played by Paul Walter Hauser. I don't think I ever saw him close his mouth more than like three times through the whole movie. He's the so same he's guy ever- from I, Tanya. Playing and giving a, a yes. very similar performance, although an even more exaggerated version of the like pathetic idiot. Yeah. So you sort of have this guy who wants to recruit, very happy-go-lucky. You have the guy who is very suspicious of Adam Driver's uh, character. Rightly so. But who is kind of like this unhinged psychopath who you know is going to, who is basically a ticking time bomb. And then you just have this like lunk-headed dunce who's there to be a comic relief. And this might be like 100% true to, you know, three specific individuals, but I think it's also meant to stand in for the way that the like racial and class dynamics often have played out in American history, which is that like the poorest whites are the ones who cling most violently to their own privilege over black people, because it's like the only thing that can make them feel superior. Right. And I feel like Felix lived in a pretty nice house. Yeah. I mean, he may just be like kind of loose. I definitely get that sense from, Ivanhoe, who just the the um like really dumb one because he clearly does not have anything going on in his life to be oh, yeah. proud of besides his own sense that he is inherently superior to anybody who is not you know an Aryan male. I also love the deep. One of the things that's very funny about this movie is that there's this like very persnickety process with membership. And a big part of the movie is waiting for that KKK membership card to come in through the mail. But there's like a very specific line about how the hoods and robes are extra and are not covered by your membership fee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a great like great comedy in the kind of banality of of evil and the bureaucracy of evil here, which which also uh, brings us to, I think, the last main character who we haven't really talked about, who is David Duke himself. Um, <laughs> well, not himself, but not himself. <laughs> <laughs> played, played, play. I'm sure he would gladly play himself. Although I actually, Ron Stallworth has been giving interviews saying that David Duke 
like hates this movie because he's made to look like an idiot. Well, he hasn't even seen it yet. Apparently, David Duke like talked to him and was like, based on the trailers, he's like, they make me look really dumb. <laughs> and Ron Stallworth <laughs> has been like, well, it's kind of true to the way he was. <laughs> Love that Ron Stallworth, <laughs> who's been like giving, as far as I can tell, making all of his press appearances in uh, like Beto O'Rourke t-shirts, uh, supporting <laughs> uh, that Democratic right. candidate. Um, uh, yeah, so to- uh, David Duke is played by uh, Topher Grace. And um, I don't know, Aisha, do you want to describe uh, David Duke's role in this movie a little bit? So David Duke doesn't come in until a little bit later. But when he finally gets him on the phone, when Ron finally gets him on the phone, it's, um, it is it is to call him to ask about his, his card, right? Because he call. I think it's when he's like, I haven't received my card yet. And David Duke's like, well, I'll, I'll make sure that's in the mail right away. You know, that well, sort of thing. I think a really, sorry, interesting detail is that he calls the national headquarters. And basically, it turns out that it's just basically David Duke and this one office alone. Right. right. So even though they have these like really grand um, pretensions, it's literally just... Topher Grace, or sorry, David Duke, uh, picking up the phone as soon as they call is like, there's no secretary. It's just a direct line. Yeah, yeah. And so he, David Duke is coming to Colorado Springs soon. And so the city's kind of getting prepared for that. You have the um, Patrice and her, um, her group trying to like prepare for um, protests when the he when David Duke rolls through and all the Klansmen are out and then you also have the Klansmen obviously like preparing for him to come and I can't I was a little confused like was someone trying to kill David Duke or there were death threats against him but one of the reasons why he was coming through Colorado Springs is because he has political aspirations that's right oh yes there's that one line That to, that was this was the one like on the nose line it's that the I was just like, line, yeah. where you know I think it's um, Ron is talking to one of the other officers and uh, about like the racism and everything and actually that the that oh because there's there's a there's another officer who's like sort of not in the mix he's not the chief but he's kind of like one of the like the the higher ups and he's like one of Ron's biggest supporters and he's the one who's like telling Ron like this is like bigger than you think it is like this is not like a game like you should be worried and so he says like you know david duke even like might want to run for president and then the line is i i'm paraphrasing but i did write this in quotes in the dark in my screening (laughs) america would never elect someone like david duke and it's like ah and then there's a and then And then there's there's another line where I, I think it's around that time where someone says we need we need a man in public office to make America great again. Yeah. So there there's obviously so many so many. Which uh, again, like make America great again, was used previously by Reagan and like might have been used in this context, but was not as was not like a common phrase among. It's not prominently associated with the Klan. We should also note that the, you know, the the 
clan while while um flip is trying to be sort of initiated and prove that he is loyal they're also planning to bomb like basically bomb the the protesters who are coming out against the clan so patrice and all of the other black power um um activists they are planning to bomb them and funny well not funny enough but like this is another interesting thing that happens is that the person who is going to actually set off the bomb is the crazy guy or like the cagey guy's wife i forget the cagey guy's name not ivanhoe and not the other guy. Uh, felix felix yeah and so, so her name is connie yes connie and connie's this sort of like she's she's a bigger woman while like uh felix is skinnier like there's all these like very cartoonish uh, depictions, I think, that are being made of her, not so subtly. She's, like, super eager to do everything for the cause. He, like, is very um, abusive towards her, and but, like, but she's always willing to do whatever he wants, and is like, yeah, we're gonna go kill those N-words. And there's an interesting scene where they're laying in bed, and she talks about how, like, this is everything we've dreamed. Like, once this happens, it's gonna be, like, this is, we've been talking about this for years, and now we're finally doing it. And it was it it reminded me in many ways of this uh the the white woman aka Allison Williams character in, in Get Out where we're seeing this p- depiction of the white woman as being like sort of if not the f- the cause of all of this but she's like the driving force of yeah. the racism the the uh the the embodiment of everything evil about um, the things that happen to black people and the, the way that they um, and, and and also just complicit in every way like complicit I think is the big word uh, for her um, yes. and I think I think it's another case where like you know before we were talking about the I was talking about the kind of the how the race and class dynamics break down in this and in this case I think there's a little bit of a sense that because she is so like oppressed in the home by virtue of being a woman, we see her, her husband Felix kind of boss her around in the middle of their clan meeting, which is of course all men. And she can't like really participate in that. So she sees this as like her opportunity to like really become somebody, even though she's a woman. So she's like a very cartoonish character. And yet like, I I will give Spike Lee credit for like complicating her character at least a little bit in a way that like sympathetic is not the right word, but you can at least understand part of where she is coming from. Yeah, for sure. When I say cartoonish, I don't mean that necessarily in a. Well, I mean, I th- <laughs> she's not she's it's not it's not flattering, yeah. but like it, it's done in a cartoonish way in part because. I think in a way he's he's showing just how sort of ridiculous it is for for someone like you can understand it, but you can also be like you're being ridiculous by being complicit in this way and being so eager to to prop up the white man while also bringing yourself down. And she also she plays kind of a big role later. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so I think this basically sets up our two climactic sequences, which we've given we've given the premise for each of them. I mean, and it is. I think it is not lost on Spike Lee that it is a sort of Charlottesville-esque dynamic when there are um, essentially like protests and counter-protests or rallies and counter-rallies. Um, and this, I, and I, it, like it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing for me. I don't remember whether the Black Student Union initially invited an activist 
um, who in this case is uh, named Mr. Turner or Jerome Turner, I think they call him, uh, notably played by Harry Belafonte. Um, Or uh, like whether that happened first and then the clan planned at the same time or vice versa. Um, But regardless, these events are happening at the same time. There have been threats of violence on many sides, as our president would say. Um, well, I thought the initiation was happening at the same time. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. So the initiation. And so I don't know whether it's a coincidence or not. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah. so you have Harry Belafonte as, quote unquote, Mr. Turner giving this speech at the same time as you have this clan initiation. Uh, I thought the cross-cutting was actually maybe like the most notable part. I mean, they're very interesting scenes in and of themselves. But you can definitely see how the white group, like, the clan uh, initiation meeting, which is definitely like all male. Um, it's sort of like purposefully so. I have these like sort of ridiculous scarves. And even though they claim to hate black people, they have black people serving them. I mean, that's sort of, that can go e- in either direction. But uh, at the same time, in this initiation meeting, because there are these death threats against. Uh, David Duke, Ron, the black Ron, the real Ron, has to be his bodyguard. Um, And so you have this, uh, essentially like this um, black surveillance of like what these white supremacists are doing. And there's sort of this like half shame, half, what do you call it? Uh, Pride in this thing that they probably feel like they're getting away with. Um, well, during that, you have Harry Belafonte, who I believe he's pl- portraying a real person because that story, I believe, is actually tr- the, entirely the, true. The story he tells is definitely true in the photographs they show. Right. So are he, real. he tells and, and the photograph is probably one of the more infamous uh, if if you've if you've seen photos of lynchings from that era of like the 20s, yeah. 30s, the early 20th century, uh, this is probably one of the ones you've definitely seen of like the man burning um and i mean there are lots of photos of that but it's right in this case it's jesse it's the photos of jesse washington right right and and yeah there's like a group of like smiling men women and children Children, yeah you know and so essentially obviously yeah so essentially harry belafonte is um recalling in great detail the how that all happened, like how he was accused of something and then there was no trial or the trial happened very quickly. I can't remember which. And then, it happened very quickly. It was yes. like a rape of a white woman as a, an alleged rape of a white woman, as you might expect. Right. And this is as the camera is like sort of slowly zooming in on Harry Belafonte as he's telling the story. Uh, it's cross cut with the Klan's members after they've been initiated watching Birth of a Nation and hooting and hollering and like watching it as if they're watching a football game or something. Right. Cheering and, on the Klan as if yeah, they're their team. Yeah. And so this is when Spike, I think, gets like his most spikiest, <laughs> where he's he's very much using like he's for as long as he's been, you know, a prominent figure, he's railed against birth of a nation rightfully so and the power that it's had and and this is him uh cross-cutting birth of a nation with this real life uh lynching that occurred in and it's very very powerful significantly i suspect that that specific lynching 
might have been chosen because it took place less than a year after the release of Birth of a Nation. I was looking this up. It took place in 1916. Birth of a Nation came out in 1915. Right. There and is like a huge resurgence of lynchings right after Birth of a Nation came out yeah. because of Birth of a Nation. Like Birth of a Nation resulted in the rebirth of the Klan. Uh, so it's like it's you might think like, oh, this is just like Spike Lee. Uh, of course, he's going to be interested in the movies, but like that, there's no way to tell the history of the clan without talking about Birth of, the, of a Nation. Right. And, and I think when you pair that with the opening shot of Gone with the Wind, he's clearly like in the same way he did with Bamboozled, uh, his his movie 2000, which came out in 2000. And the last like few minutes of Bamboozled is just montages of various yeah. uh, racist cartoons from the past of like. Mickey Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland blackface like all this stuff he's using all of these very powerful images that for years have been like shaped the perception of what black people are um, and turning it against it I do think you know that he he recognizes in a way or maybe I'm just like reading into it but I do think he recognizes that there's like no way he can really push against that like it's hard to compete with a hundred over a century of those images and and think that it's going to shape those things. But I think that it still works really, really well. And he uses that to his advantage. I think sense. it's also not just Birth of a Nation, because there are a couple of conversations. Uh, I think one among cops in the police department, and then one between Ron and Patrice, where they talk about the greater representation of Black people in on TV. Yeah, and so there's like a... There's a discussion about black exploitation and how Patrice is really against Superfly because the main character is a black pimp and that's a stereotype. And there's a discussion about um, how Archie Bunker made racism uncool. And so you can sort of see like how much of a throwback the KKK is within like 1970s uh, mainstream culture. And then there's this like complaint about how there's too many black uh, spokespeople in on TV. All right, OJ. Uh, yeah. They specifically mentioned the like OJ ads that you know one might have seen recently and um, made in America that documentary. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting that he's not just sort of rooting this in the film history. I think he's talking about something very much about like sort of popular culture like now i thought that was meaningful and sort of like drives home more uh the parallels to the- with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Present. Okay, so we so after the initiation and we after that whole sequence, they have like the reception afterwards, and so we have Ron undercover, and we also have Flip. Yeah, Flip, uh, a.k.a. Um, Adam Driver's character, who's there as Ron. And this is something that like felt convoluted and didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But so there's one guy who's part of the clan who like sees Flip 
being pretending to be Ron and turns to Felix and is like, yo, I know that guy. (laughs) He put me away in jail like a few years ago. And his name's not Ron. His His name's not Ron. And first of all, the actor who played him, maybe I'm wrong, but he looked Latino and I was very confused. Um, (laughs) It's like, maybe he's not like I could be totally off, but I was just like, you don't look at least you don't look like you would be accepted by this group. I think he's maybe like Italian-American. He's in a lot of Spike Lee movies. I had a similar (laughs) feeling. Yeah, I thought it was kind of weird. I was like, you don't look like you're pure white Aryan, but whatever. Anyway, so this guy like recognized him and he tells Felix like, that's a cop. And so basically his cover is blown. Oh, but not before um, Ron, or not not before real Ron, black Ron, That's useful, actually, yeah. Not, not before Black Ron pulls, like, a Sammy Davis Jr. on uh, All in the Family and, like, asks to take a picture with David Duke. And David Duke's like, sure. And, and then he stands next to him, and David Duke is, like, clearly trying not to touch him. And then as the flash goes off, he he doesn't kiss him on the cheek like Sammy no, Davis does. Yeah. But he, like, puts his arms around David Duke and the other white guy on the side of him. And he's like, what did you do? And, like, David Duke <laughs> freaks out. So that happens. Um, and so I believe I should <laughs> Just I'll quickly interject to say, I believe that is also real, and I believe that Ron Stallworth has that photo. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so now that his cover is blown, I forget what happens. How does Felix like? So, I think he, I think it's Black Ron who figures out that Felix, that Felix gives a signal to his wife to go drop this uh, right. bomb. And it turns out that the target is actually uh, Patrice. Patrice. Right. Well, I think maybe originally she was going to bomb the student union meeting, but then there were a bunch of cops around. And so they were like, oh, well, we'll just get the The leader leader of that group at her house. I believe that's the case. But anyway, they yeah, they end up she ends up driving to Patrice's house. And uh, she. The and Connie is like not good at putting bombs in strangers' homes, so they're sort of like a fumble. She tries to put it in the mailbox, and, and it, it doesn't like doesn't fit. fit in the mailbox. <laughs> and then she sees Patrice coming, and so she's like, "Oh!" So then she decides to instead put it under Patrice's car, which is parked yeah. out front. Um, and but then Ron Black Ron yeah. sees her and is like, "What are you doing?" And goes and attacks her, and then the cops come. And who they, don't? And these are cops who somehow don't know who the one black <laughs> cop is <laughs> in the entire whatever. Anyway, in the in the city, come up and she starts the 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 wife starts yelling, "Get this black man off of me! Yeah. He's attacking me!" And of course, you know, she accuses him of rape. Yes, yes, she accuses him of rape. And so they then it becomes like a very eerily reminiscent of like all the police videos we've ever seen, where they're like oh. they they take him away from her. Uh, and like start to, I think they beat him in some way and they like yeah, handcuff him. They like kick him on the ground. It's very Rodney King. Yes, yes. And so then wh- I can't remember if White Ron shows up after the the car explodes. Like it, the <laughs> so car we have gets to explain set. how the car explodes. Because this is, so the beating is, is, this is, you get like all the tones in this movie at once. The beating is quite disturbing because he's being beaten pretty badly. He's yeah. a cop. He's being beaten by fellow cops just because he's black, basically. It's, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a case of mistaken identity, but the reason that they don't believe him is that he's black. Uh, and then simultaneously, 
Felix and Ivanhoe, the like two um, most like radical and dumbest clan members show up. They like pull up next to the car. I guess it's Patrice's car that has the bomb on top of it or underneath it or whatever. And I think like one of them has the detonator and and like the the clan member's wife is like i think she's saying like don't do it or something and they're just like whatever and then they 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 explode the bomb which of course just means they like explode themselves um i i can't remember like i think they live and they're just horribly burned maybe i think the movie like doesn't care that much about these terrible people when other cops are right that like it's just dumb anyway so (laughs) then white ron or flip rolls up and is like he's a cop like what are you doing and you know so that's resolved uh and then those guys so like someone goes to jail or like it gets in trouble. Right. Connie so goes to jail. Right. Connie goes to jail. The clan members blew themselves up. And then for I think what how I interpreted the next part is that basically we get the briefly the like too good to be true ending. So they've caught like the good guys have won, clan members are going to jail. There's even this moment where they like sit down with um Landers, the the racist cop. And they like burn him and they get him to confess. They get him to confess on tape in like spectacular fashion um, about groping. About groping. I mean, he also and there's a reference at some point to how he killed somebody. I can't remember whether he, he killed a black it. boy. Oh, that's right. I totally forgot about that. Right. Yeah, there's a that's like mentioned a few times where and the police officers kind of closed ranks around him. Most of the police police officers consider themselves, you know, not racist, and yet you know they maintained their loyalties to this guy who c- killed a black kid. Um, and 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 you have a, a lucky man by Emerson Lake and Palmer playing, so it's like everything's perfect. Everybody's kind of smiling, and it's great. And then it, it's like the ending of Carrie is what it reminds me of. Above all, if you guys remember this, where everything is so perfect, like everything's like too sunny um, and too normal again. And then you get Ron Stallworth and Patrice like back at their apartment, and they start to kind of this old dynamic between them of can they really stay together despite the fact that Ron is a police officer and Patrice will not condone that. And then I think they just like look out towards the window. Someone knocks right at the door and then, and someone knocks at the door and then they open it. And then we get the signature dolly shot that every Spike Lee movie right. has. And where they're on the dolly. As where they're the dolly on the, moves. yes. So they're on the dolly and it's them with their guns pointed and they're like kind of back to back, like, you know, Bonnie and Clyde or whatever. And they're, or like black exploitation heroes. Oh yes. Like black exploitation heroes. And so their, their guns are drawn and they're moving down there, like slowly down the hallway on the dolly shot, just like, you know, any black exploitation movie or, you know, team, Team teamwork, and we see then that they're being drawn towards this uh, burning cross on their lawn, and then it cuts to what I think a lot of people who, if they know anything about this movie, they've heard about this ending, which is a montage of actual footage of the Charlottesville riots, protests, riots last year, 
and I don't believe I if I remember correctly, there's like no music underneath it. There there could be, but I could be wrong. But yeah, it's, I, it's I mostly don't. just you see, you know, all the white men in khakis and with their um, the Jews will not replace, will not replace us, replace Chan us. and the tiki torches. And then after a bunch of those sequences, we see very graphic footage of the car that plowed through the the protesters um, and murdered Heather Heyer and um, injured many more. And it, apparently Spike got permission from Heather Heyer's mother her family to use it he asked first um but he and i think it's going to be one of those things that people will find polarizing i thought it was used to great effect and i think was kind of in in a way necessary to sort of drive the point home at the end and considering it's been less than a year although when this movie comes out it'll be just about a year i think the, the riots were on the 11th and the 12th of last year, if I remember correctly, and this movie's coming out on the 10th. So having it be around the anniversary, and obviously this movie will, you know, will not always be seen right around the anniversary, but I think that it, it no matter what, it's a very chilling uh, choice to make and will keep it from being forgotten, I think. And there's also a little snippet that we see of real-life David Duke who is, I believe, endorsing Donald Trump in the clip. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, I mean, he yeah. was at, I believe he was in Charlottesville, and I think it's him talking about how, I believe he gives um, a statement about how, like, he can tell that Donald Trump is, like, supporting them and that they have a man in the White House. Right. Yeah, echoing that earlier clunky line in the, in the movie. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was really effective for me, too. It Like, it reminds me, it's the kind of thing that you might think would date a movie. And, like, sometimes Spike Lee's movies get kind of dated. But I think most of the time what happens is he puts in, like, he puts in hyper-contemporary references to, to current news events and, like, whatever um, the, like, racial tragedy of, of the moment is. And... Like things don't really change. So, so yeah. in the opening credits of Malcolm X, he overlays. It's very similar to many sequences in this movie. He overlays a Malcolm X, a Malcolm X speech. I believe it's maybe about police brutality or something over the Rodney King mm-hmm. tape, um, which had happened like I don't know within a year before that movie or something. Yeah, very close. Do you know? Do the right thing c- contains a reference to Michael Stewart, the guy who was killed by police chokehold um not long before that movie came out and like 25 years later spike lee edited their gunner tape to the scene of radio rahim's killing so it's it's like hyper contemporary and yet it's like kind of evergreen and in that sense i think it both really works now and i'm afraid it will still work very well in another 25 years or whatever i also think that the charlottesville uh, excerpts or uh, footage was actually probably necessary because uh, as far as I can tell no one in Black Clansman actually dies. What we get a lot is sort of um, this black-white police cop duo outsmarting the clan and they almost seem like these like very jokey figures who only happen to have like a very like biting tongue or something like that. But I think that the Charlottesville footage was necessary to show the actual, like 
true viciousness of like what they actually want to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, another thing that we get again and again from Spike Lee at the endings of his movies is he really likes to leave people unsettled. Like uh, probably the most obvious example is I think it's at the end of School Days that Lawrence Fishburne literally just like runs to the camera. It's another it's like a Carrie type dream sequence. And he just yells at the camera, wake up like really, really loud while on a Spike Lee dolly shot. Yeah. Um, Funny enough, do the right thing kind of ends on a happier note than a lot of his other movies. Not happier, but like less like tense because it ends with him like going to Sal's and being like, are we good? We're good. And like pans out. Right. And it kind of returns like it's just another day now, which in itself is unsettling, but it's not quite as like it doesn't end with Rado Rahim dying. Like there's there's a coda and the coda is like a little more. Yeah. In in a way. Anyway. (laughs) I mean, I guess like even at the time, as you have written about Aisha, like even with that peaceful coda, it was still enough to get you know, white critics afraid that that movie was going to cause riots in the streets. So maybe Uh, he or he felt he had to temper it or maybe somebody convinced himself, convinced him he had to temper it. All right. So we should, we should wrap up. I, do you guys want to talk about the David Duke call or should we close? I don't have anything in particular to say about it. It's like, I mean, it, it could just be worth pointing out that like afterwards, Afterwards, like Ron's what what Ron is going to do next is kind of up in the air. Um, and and also like if, if he it's, it's clear that he feels that he has some unfinished business with uh, with what's his name? Actually, so oh, oh, we, we, for, so, yeah, we yeah. forgot something so, very crucial. So, so the, the crucial point to make about David Duke uh, is that even though Felix finds out that it like Ron Stallworth was being voiced by a black man and was be like they were being set up. It, David Duke doesn't know this because they somehow like didn't get the news to him because all this other stuff was happening. And so David Duke calls <laughs> Ron Stallworth and uh or no, I think Ron calls him. Yeah. But like he he goads him and is like, you know, how would you like, how would you know if I, how do you know I'm not a black man or something along those lines? And then like convince, like, I can't remember how it plays out, but eventually ends up everyone around him. It's because David Duke starts, David Duke starts talking about how he can tell the difference between a white man's voice and a black man's voice. Right. Right. And he says, I, I can't remember what he says exactly, but it's like something about our sounds maybe. Yeah. And then Ron Stallworth starts like really like leaning into, I guess what David Duke would describe as, as blacker and blacker speech. While his other coworkers are around him, like giggling in the background. (laughs) Right. He's like covering the receiver. Yeah, and then it just gets more and more ridiculous, and then eventually he like reveals that he was a black man, and David Duke's like, <gasps> <laughs> David Duke's head explodes. Yeah, uh, yeah. We left out that the thing I thought I thought you were going to say that we also left out, uh, and th- maybe this will bring us back to the unsettled note, which I think is probably the note to end on, is um, that after they make all those arrests and stuff, that the Ron Stallworth superiors come to him and say we're like destroying all of this evidence right. and you get the kind of like end of Raiders of the Lost Ark type thing where they just like file it away and like yeah. no one will know any of this happened for another few decades. Yeah. It's like he doesn't get it's, any of the glory of like what he did, which is, which sucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully he's getting a little bit of it now. Anyway. <laughs> um, 
Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. All right. Th- thanks, Aisha. Thank you, Forrest. Thanks, Hingu. Thanks, everyone. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.